Tired of being cornered at parties without a ready opinion of the relative merits of ESG's second and third albums? Tempfan's pre-rolled opinions allow you to bluff a working knowledge of the entire discographies of countless legacy artists. Listen to this podcast and never again be at a loss for a hot take on any number of amazing bands. Or you can just listen to the albums and make up your own mind. We're not about to tell you what to do. Best of all, we recommend you listen to them both via our playlist on Spotify that combine informed album introductions with the records themselves. Temporary Fandoms began life as a bunch of idiots on Facebook who listen to complete discographies and then talk about them. Since we've been doing this for five years, we thought it was high time we heave the format into something more lasting so you can join us in listening to and arguing the toss about an artist's work at your own pace. If you're not utterly repelled by Facebook, and frankly you should be, you can join the group at facebook.com slash groups slash tempfans. But that's not necessary for listening to the podcast, which is available in most places you'll usually find these things. However, we strongly recommend listening on Spotify. I mean, they're not paying us or anything, it's just that there you'll find the podcast arranged in a handy playlist that allows you to listen to all the great and not-so-great records we'll be talking about. Thank you to everyone who listened to our pilot episode on ESG, especially those who took the time to give us feedback, with which we hope to make episode 2 even better. So join me, Nick Hilditch, Ewan, and our curator, John Tanzi, as we take on our second band, The Mighty Pogues. Okay, so welcome to episode two of the podcast. You heard Nick's voice just before the intro. Um, hopefully this time we'll be a little bit more slick, a little bit better edited and seem like we know what we're doing. Does that sound about right, Nick? Yeah, I reckon. Um, also, I wanted to say um, thank you to everyone who took part in the first episode because we kind of forgot to do that. <laughs> yeah, end. we did have this plan to loop back in, have this thing at the end, say thanks, that was amazing, give our opinions, and it ended up on the, what would you say, cutting room floor? Sort of, yeah. And then, but, you know, I want to say thanks to Jonathan Fisher for writing the music, which was great. Thanks to, thank, thanks to Jonathan Fisher, and thanks to Zoe, her curation was amazing. Thanks to Marion for spending probably two hours of her life that she's never going to get back. Um, which we never used in the end. Thanks to anybody who listened and gave us feedback for part one, which is ESG, which hopefully if you haven't found it already, you'll go back and listen to that now. And anything, did I miss anything, Nick? No, I, I think that's everything. But the remarkable thing is after this shambolic thing we did the first time that anybody volunteered to curate for the second episode. And speaking of idiots who volunteered to curate from the second episode, um, hey, John. <laughs> Hey, Ian, how you doing? <laughs> Not too bad. Um, welcome to the, the shambles that is the uh, Temporary Fandoms podcast. Um, where are you calling us from? I sound like a radio DJ when I ask that question, but I'm going to stick with it. Uh, I'm, coming, I'm coming at you live from Brighton uh, in the UK, Ian. Brilliant. We already mentioned who we're going to be covering this episode, but why don't you remind us, John, and tell us why? 
Okay, so uh, we're going to be uh, immersing ourselves in Shane McGowan and the Pogues, which is not a particularly pleasant idea. Um, and <laughs> uh, so the reason that I, I always dreamed of being immersed in Shane McGowan, um, and I suppose the, 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 the reason that, that I love the Pogues, I suppose if that's the question you're asking, uh, it, it's partly sort of cultural, you know, my... Uh, uh, my dad was was Irish, and and I sort of come from that background, uh, and so for the Pogues to take that kind of traditional thing and then sort of throw it into a punk mixer, that really uh, it was really exciting uh, for me. And um, were they one of those bands that uh, arrived in your consciousness fully formed, as in what you got into, say, alternative music and punk? And then you went, oh, but there's also this band that has Irish roots and is merging a bit of the Clash and a bit of the Buzzcocks with this Irish trad. Or were they a band that you sort of discovered through osmosis as you were growing up through a family or whatnot? Well, I remember the very first uh, time I heard the Pogues was one of my friend's older brothers played the sickbed of Cucullin in his car. Uh, and that song starts off very traditional slow kind of Irish uh, and then it becomes completely punk rock and I think it must have been about 10 years old uh, but I found it incredibly exciting and that uh, excitement of taking that sort of traditional stuff that, that I had heard and I I'd always hated to be honest um, I, but then making that kind of punk thing uh, was what uh, really blew me away so after that I, after about the age of 10 I think I'd always been aware of the polls and it'd always been something that I'd heard and it is part of, you know, the culture, of part, part of the West uh, of Scotland and all that. So you say it was about 10. I mean, when I was 10, I think I was listening to Salt and Pepper. Um, and so my music taste hadn't really formed at that point. Um, were you listening to anything interesting by family members or was the Pogues the first thing that kicked your door in? Well, I did that thing where I had an older brother, you know. I had a, I had a brother who was seven years older who was into the jam and Northern Soul and all mod music and two-tone. So I sort of grew up with pretty decent taste, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, I have to say. So I don't, you know, uh, so they weren't the first band. Uh, but my first sort of brush with Irish music, I suppose, uh, was uh, tapes in, in the car that my dad would play. And um, it was always really kind of maudlin, sentimental kind of stuff, you know. Uh, he would have these tapes with, <laughs> Uh, there'd always be like one or two guys uh, with big sideburns and jumpers either stood in front of a farmhouse <laughs> or, else, or else in front of a roaring fire, <laughs> which presumably was inside the farmhouse. Uh, and, and it was really that, that commercial stuff was really sentimental and kind of, uh, and my dad would play it almost as a punishment, you know. I think that's it. I was aware of Irish traditional music. Um, I, the area I grew up in was very working class, very Irish, Irish grandparents. But basically, it just passed me by. The first time I remember hearing of the Pogues was when the Pogues and the Dubliners would play together on like Top of the Pops or something. And yeah. they, they were already a thing. I had no idea who they were. And in fact, the first sort of brushes with fiddles and traditional music that I got was embarrassingly bands like the Wonder Stuff and the Levelers who mm -hmm. took that that trad idea and brought it into sort of indie indie English indie music 
I guess. Obviously, at that time, I was not really aware of the, the legacy and the influence of Shane McGowan uh, and the Pogues a couple of years, a couple of years prior. So one thing we don't want to do when talking about the Pogues, which maybe we did a little bit when talking about ESG in a previous episode, is, is go down the route of saying they're an Irish band, look at the Irishness of it, Irish, Irish, Irish. However, we also can't avoid the fact that they're rooted in trad and bringing a modern sound or modern for the 80s and 90s and a post-punk sound to uh, and marrying that traditional Irish Irish music. Um, John, um, we were talking a bit ago about how, how you thought that the Dubliners had also uh, gone through that before. Yeah, I think, um, you know, with, with traditional Irish music, there's a, there's a strain that takes it very seriously. It's almost, almost like classical music. Um, and that, you know, you know, they play with the authentic instruments and uh, it's all very, very heightened. And so you've got a band like the Dubliners come along who sang just just body drinking songs, you know, almost exclusively, or else maudlin death songs. Uh, and then the Pogues come along, and the Pogues do almost exactly the same thing, body drinking songs and maudlin death songs. Um, what would you say would be the big, I mean, if they're both singing the same kind of thing, um, was the difference purely the punk influence? Yeah, I think so. Um, as Shane McGowan says, uh, at the beginning, uh, the Pogues weren't, any good. They were, they, they were very incompetent. And the fact that they were trying to play this Irish music without any real knowledge of how to do it properly was what led to that sort of that interesting sound. Uh, I suppose like Johnny Cash, apparently as well, his band couldn't play their instruments. That's why he got that, that kind of metronomic beat going, because he couldn't play fast. Uh, the Pogues couldn't play slow, I suppose, uh, and, and, and sort of ended up with this, this kind of punky kind of thing. Uh, but a lot of Irish musicians, a lot of uh, uh, Irish culture, Irish media were uh, very angry with the Pogues for, uh, as they saw it, underlining the idea of a drunken paddy sort of stereotype, uh, uh, which they were trying to get away from. And even on that, um, just jumping in slightly, how was Shane McGowan treated? Because, yes, he's got Irish family, but he... He's a guy from London, right? I mean, have I got this? He's, he's a guy from London with a bit of a London accent turning up going, this is modern Irish post-punk music. Was there, uh, maybe from the Irish press, a bit more of a sneer? Yes, I think, yes. Yeah, there very much was. In fact, there's a story about uh, they went on a television program and uh, uh, the music was described as a bastardization uh, uh, of Irish culture. And yeah, I mean, not only was Shane McGowan Anglo-Irish, the rest of the Pogues weren't even Anglo-Irish. They were the English. Um, they weren't, you know, Irish Catholic or with Irish ancestry, they were, they were English. Katie Reardon obviously was of Irish ancestry, but she wasn't born in Ireland. And the rest of them were, were English. So it really was a hodgepodge. Mm -hmm. And when they went over to Ireland, I suppose the, the idea is that the, the fans, the people took Shane to their heart and said, he's one of us. Uh, but a lot of the, the maybe the other people, uh, uh, the middle classes, the media, the chattering classes, uh, decided they were promoting a, a dangerously retrograde image of, of Irishness. Do you think that could be because, and I'm totally plucking this out of thin air, or my, my half-assed notes here, um, most countries, most generations, most groups, they, they want their own punk poet, so to speak. You know, when, when punk 
blew up in the 70s. There were people who attached themselves to, I don't know, Johnny Rotten or, or whoever. Um, certain generations have their beat poet, their punk poet. Um, I'm guessing at that time in Ireland, unless, well, it's all early 80s, would it have been where he, they sort of went? Yeah, absolutely, 84. You've got you two who were probably actually an all right post-punk band in their early albums, but there's mm -hmm. not really something that people could, uh, an authenticity people could attach themselves onto. Do you think he came along at the right time, bringing an updated version of, of, of Irish music, but with this, this sneer? Well, I think to me it was, this, it was the, it was the unapologetic nature of it. Uh, I think Irish culture was maybe trying to get away from the ideas of the past, understandably, um, with uh, what was going on uh, politically with the Troubles and everything. And they wanted to get away from the idea of people telling Irish jokes about Irishmen being drunk and all the rest of it. So it's, it's understandable. Uh, but some of those, the, the, you know, uh, there's an element of truth in some of those cliches. And, and, and Shane McGowan and his mates, they, they were heavy drinking uh, sort of, sort of Irish people, and and heavy drinking Irish people love them, as did heavy drinking people the world over. I think there is that it's very hard to to decouple uh, any <laughs> image of the Pogues. I mean, I'm I remember when I lived in North London, somebody saying, "Oh, that's the pub Shane McGowan's always drunk in." Uh, it's not that's the pub Shane McGowan's in. That's the pub Shane McGowan's always drunk in. There's some bands. It's impossible to decouple the the tawdry, negative, seedy side, I guess, whether mm. it's alcohol or drugs or, or womenizing or, or, or whatever, any sort of self-abusive um, behavior. Yeah. You can't imagine some bands existing without it. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And, and for me, Shane McGowan and the band in general, but Shane in particular, you know, he really, he really did walk the walk, you know. Like you look at say the Clash and maybe, and I love the Clash, but maybe Joe Strummer. You know, you look kind of coolly the Quiff. Uh, they stood with their legs apart with the guitars, all the rest of it. Shane McGowan really didn't care how he looked. He didn't bathe. He was he was really punk in that sense of you could be ugly and be a punk. You could be smelly and be a punk. You know, you didn't have to uh, 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 sort of conform. So I think yeah, that that sense of of them being tied into the lifestyle. Is maybe stronger with the Pogues than it is with, with almost any other band. And part of the reason is the drunkenness, I think. It's like when you went to see the Pogues, they were on the stage. They were as drunk as the audience. It felt to people like they were one of them. Uh, and some of those early gigs, they, they're literally like bumping into each other. You know, they're hopeless, but it's, it's just the energy created is just so, so much fun. So skipping forward a few years, we've, we've got the, this idea of this authentic band semi-Anglo-Irish, but representing a sort of post-punk authenticity. Um, and they also have one of the, one of the biggest sing selling Christmas singles the world has ever seen. Indeed. How is this? Oh, my brief caveat, um, and anybody who knows me knows this is true. My household is a battleground every Christmas. My wife <laughs> is from Cork. Obviously, it's the fairy tale of New York. I'm from Wolverhampton. I'm sorry, it's Slade, it's Noddy Holder, <laughs> that's the single greatest Christmas song the world has ever known. However, Noddy is this big, cheery, cheesy character that is happy to go, it's Christmas! Whereas Shane McGowan, 
I mean, how did he deal with this? Do you know? I mean, did, was this something that he just shrugged off? This 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 global fame, and it's a global fame for a Christmas number. Was it a Christmas number one or a Christmas song? Anyway. Yeah, Christmas number two. Yeah. Uh, always on my mind by the Pet Shop Boys. Uh, uh, beat it out. Um, I, I think it's fair to say that that fame didn't sit well with Shane. You know, fame and fortune. Uh, turned an already very volatile character into uh, somebody who, who who didn't really know how to escape, other than than sort of trying to kill himself so that he went with excess. Um, and so I think the 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 fact that song was was huge was probably quite good for the band in terms of uh, financially. Um, and I think for some people, they, I, th- I think some other artists might be really annoyed that they were defined by a Christmas song. But I don't think Shane really cares. I think he's quite proud of that song, from what I've read in interviews. Um, I, and I, think it, it, he... it, I mean, I would be proud of the second best Christmas Christmas song ever made. <laughs> well, Slade, of course, are another underrated band. <laughs> oh, I am going to be pushing for the Slade immersion. I'm just waiting and waiting and waiting until Nick's drunk enough to agree. <laughs> oh, actually, probably about eight or nine, I think. And they get pretty metal towards the end, like surprisingly mm. metal. Yeah, that doesn't sell it to me, but I was just going to say, maybe we should do it at Christmas. <sighs> oh, don't. Okay. It's got to be at Christmas, right? <laughs> um, one thing I will say uh, towards Barrett of New York, and I'm going to caveat this with Slade is also about the depression and looking towards the future and optimism. Um, is that Fairytale of New York is a deeply tragic song about immigration and tensions um, wrapped up in this this, this Christmas tale. Um, And this sort of depth of lyricism um, does seem to be a common thread through their work. Um, John, you were talking to us just beforehand about um, how you think that Shane is one of the few people who maybe has read and can quote and sing parts of Ulysses. Well, that's right. I mean, I think you hit on two things there uh, about Shane's lyrics. Is, is the first thing is that he writes about people that don't normally get written about. The, the drunken old couple who are dying um, after their dreams have completely failed in New York. It's not a normal subject for a song, um, even amongst some of the more maudlin songwriters. They tend to write about their own heartbreak, but Shane sort of inhabits the lives of these people. Uh, who, who don't normally get, get stories about them. Uh, the Old Man Drag's a classic example uh, of, of, of like a teenage uh, rent boy who's, who's been abused and who's dying uh, in a police station. And nobody else was writing those songs. Nobody else was writing about those people. Um, but then the other thing, of course, is the, is the sort of depth of literary reference in, in his lyrics. Um, and there's a great website called Pogetry, uh, and it treats his lyrics almost like they're a an academic text, which they are really. Um, and the more you listen and the more you read about them, uh, you can see that not only somehow Shane McGowan uh, internalised all this poetry and all this uh, all this beautiful stuff, and as you said, James Joyce's Ulysses, uh, while still you know being Shane McGowan, still being an absolute tear up and, and 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 drinking as much as he did and being as wild as he was. Does that play into the classic trope, though, of, of the drunken rogue, the, the Richard Harris, the raconteur, keeping court in a pub, um, able to sound eloquent yet hammered at the same time? I think it does, uh, definitely. Uh, it's, it's part of that genre of, of sort of maybe men who get away with it. 
as far as I can see, Shane McGowan uh, backs it up with a, a depth of knowledge, genuinely, that, that you don't tend to see uh, in other people that aren't academics. It's almost that level, I would say, like a, a literary professor of some kind. He's got that level of knowledge. Whereas I think Richard Harris, maybe not. Well, I think we've, we've covered quite a lot and this has probably got a lot of people listening going, I want to listen to the pose. I want to listen to the pose. Um, first of all, you are going to have to listen to some of Shane's earlier stuff, uh, but John will take you through this, talk you through this um, after this. When he was about a year old, Shane was sent to live with aunts in Tipperary, while his parents got started in London, which was a common enough arrangement for Irish immigrants at the time. The story is that Shane grew up in a farmhouse with a seemingly endless cavalcade of uncles, aunts, grandparents and cousins. He describes it as a chaotic but loving world of music and smoke, Guinness, rosaries and horse racing. He remembers loving the freedom. It was a world without enforced bedtimes or baths. And by extrapolation, I guess you would say without brushing his teeth. Shane claims he was smoking, drinking and gambling from age five. And he first tried whiskey at age eight. On top of all this was a prodigious literary talent and an obsession with Catholicism. Reportedly, he would entertain visitors with his ability to recite the catechism while barely of school age. Skipping forward a few years and back in London with his parents, a young Shane excelled at literature and won a scholarship to the ultra-exclusive Westminster School at age 14. Perhaps predictably, he was expelled almost immediately for smoking hash and drinking. By his teens, Shane was a barman in the Griffin Tavern in Charing Cross. And in June 1976, he'd see a Sex Pistols gig that he says changed his life. Teenage Shane became a notorious figure in London's brief and chaotic punk scene. In Shane's words, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. If I hadn't been for punk, I'd probably be some drunken shithead barman running my own pub. He decided to call himself Shane O'Hooligan, which sounds like a punk character in the Beano, and formed his first band. Along with Shanna Bradley, who later formed The Men They Couldn't Hang, he founded The Nipple Erectors, who somewhere along the line became The Nips. Most of The Nips' music was high-octane punk rockabilly, but the song on this playlist, Gabrielle, was their only brush with very minor commercial success. It's a pleasant enough Elvis Costello-style pop song, but it wasn't enough. It seemed that The Nips were fun, but ultimately a failure, and Shane, was back to working in pubs again. <laughs> 